In these days of Lent, Catherine and I are into a sermon series looking at a single verse from Scripture. The Scripture verse comes from Mark 9.24, and it goes like this. Immediately, the Father said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. The word of the Lord. When I was 10 years old, my parents gave me a fantastic opportunity to go away to summer camp in North Carolina. This camp was very much in the outdoors. We lived in rustic cabins. We swam in a lake. There was no swimming pool. We went hiking and exploring in the mountains. We played in the outdoors in every way. This was a wonderful experience for me. I learned a lot about myself. I also had to deal with small challenges that felt like major crises, like mildewed clothes, like camp food, like mice running across the cabin floor, like homesickness, and other challenges. Perhaps one of the most indelible memories for me at this camp was swimming in the lake and the mandatory swimming test. Some of you may have heard something about this. As I said, this camp was on a lake. Every camper had to pass some level of a swimming test just to get near the lake. The easy test was known as the brim test, named after the little fish. The brim test consisted of a requirement to just swim across a pretty shallow area of the swimming section of the lake. Everyone had to pass that test just to get near the lake. The other test was known as the Bass Test, and it was much more difficult. But if you passed the Bass Test, you not only got to swim in the lake, you got to canoe on the lake without a life jacket. A very important distinction. Imagine the scene on the lake, some kids wearing these big, orange, bulky life jackets. They were the weak swimmers in the camp. They could only pass the Brim Test. And then there were the others who had no life jacket on. They had obviously passed the bass test, able to canoe without a life jacket. That's the only cool way to be. (laughs) Well, let me tell you about the bass test. It was hard. You had to jump off the dock in the deep end of the lake, which was scary in itself. And then you had to jump into the lake wearing your blue jeans over your bathing suit. Yes, your heavy denim blue jeans over your swimsuit. The test required that you, in the water, take off your pants, all the while treading water, zip them up, tie knots in each leg of the pants, and still treading water, blow them up, and create for yourself your personal flotation device. (laughs) So as a 10-year-old, so anxious to go canoeing without a life vest, so desiring to be free from the jeers of all my fellow campers, this swimming test became the major challenge of my life, the dreaded challenge of my life. So on the first day of camp, I knew about this test. My brother had gone to this camp. I tried to take the bass test. I dropped my jeans to the bottom of the lake. 
I returned to my cabin dejected and with one less pair of pants. <laughs> They're in the deep end. A few days later, with the encouragement of my counselor and the encouragement of fellow campers and my brother, I mustered up enough courage to try to take it again. This time around, I got my pants off. I even had the zipper up, but I about drowned trying to tie knots in the legs of the pants, and the lifeguards had to drag me out. My whole first summer, I couldn't pass this dang test. And I had to endure the shame of wearing a life jacket every time I went canoeing. And finally, the next summer, after dreading this test for a whole year, I returned a stronger swimmer and I passed the test. What a joy. I could go canoeing without a life vest. Do you know the secret to passing this test? Do you know the method that you have to employ to pass this test? It's not fighting it. If you struggle, if you race to get it all done, get the jeans off, tie the knot, zip it up, blow air into it, you're going to likely wear yourself out and fail. If you get so anxious to do it all like I was doing, you fail. The struggle wears you out. People told me that on the first summer. I didn't believe them. It didn't make sense. Less fighting means succeeding. Less struggle meant more success. I didn't believe it. How could that work? Floating, not fighting, with the blue jeans was the key to passing the test. This simple scenario for me has become uh, quite an enduring image of the gospel and what we tend to do with it as human beings. When we know ourselves to be Christian, when we know we're claimed at baptism, we often take it on with such fervency, committing our lives to it, doing it with all focus and frenzy, that before long we wear ourselves out and perhaps even drown in the process. We often take it on, this claim on our lives, with such fervor and commitment that before we're aware of it, we're fading out, dropping out, or drowning along the way. We hear Jesus' claim on our lives, this invitation to follow We give all our energy to it, intending to do well, applying our lives to good works. Certainly our good works get us somewhere. I'm going to try so hard. I'm going to do it so passionately. We feel the tug of God's Spirit. We act, we do, we struggle. Certainly this gets us to some place with God or it exhausts us totally. And it becomes all about the struggle than about God. And you know what? That's all backwards. That's all backwards. We don't earn God's love. We can't earn God's love. God's love comes first. God's light shines first. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 
Our job, our calling, is to simply live into that. To share that love. It's not meant to be a frenzied struggle. It's not meant to be how our lives flow. Love and light offered freely. Love and light shared freely. It does involve serious commitment. I'm not doubting that. Don't question that. It does involve serious energy and passion, but it's never an effort to earn God's love. It is because of God's love, because of God's favor. That changes everything. In these Lenten days, we've been paying attention and lining up our lives with this desperate father who brings his epileptic child to Jesus and says, if you can heal him, please. And Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. And the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm pretty sure that one of the areas where we might struggle, and certainly I struggle with unbelief, is with our good deeds. Our efforts to earn God's favor. Surely our faithful service earns us something, doesn't it? Certainly our devotion to serving God with love and care, with attendance and participation and commitment, certainly that earns us God's favor, right? Surely God is pleased with us. Isn't our feeding of the hungry on Monday, isn't our efforts to live faithfully every day of the week, our well-intentioned lives, surely this wins us God's delight in us, right? Wins us God's approval. It has to get us something. That's how we think. That's how I tend to think on many days. This is what we're supposed to do. Work hard. Do your best. You will be rewarded. Struggle and apply yourself. Give it your best and it'll earn you something. Achieve success. Climb the ladder. And certainly that would apply to God, right? God's fair and gracious, right? But that's not how it works. It's not how it works. And actually, we should be glad that it doesn't work this way. When it works that way or when we hope it works that way, guess what happens? It proves disastrous for God's people, for us. In the early going of God and God's people, reading through the pages of the Old Testament through all the generations, there was this understanding that God's covenant with God's people was like most covenants. Each party in the covenant holds up certain ends of the covenant. This was this long-standing idea that God had chosen and claimed this people, that God would care for and love these people no matter what, and God would show them the way to life. And then God's people, in response to that covenant, live as they were instructed. They would trust God's presence. They would trust God's promises. They would follow God in all God's ways. They would worship God and serve God and care for each other. They would create a community of peace and justice that would fill the world. It was a covenant. Faithful God, faithful people. Well, if you recall the biblical story, you know how the plan went. God always kept God's part of the covenant, but human beings couldn't keep God's part of the covenant, would not keep God's part, wouldn't keep their part of the covenant. God would say, go and be my people, and the people would go off and live as they wanted. God would say, here's the land that I give to you, live and love with justice and peace, and the people would go off and do what they wanted and forget who brought them there and live in selfishness and in idolatry. 
God would say, here's a king and here's peace in your region. And the people would hoard what God had given them and squash those who had less and tend to their own needs. And with every turn of events, God would be sad and God would be frustrated. What kind of people had God called to be in this covenant? And the biblical story is in many ways about God's wonderful faithfulness and human beings' failure to live faithfully with God. So God keeps trying to make it right, make it work. But our history with God is a history that shows if we are trying to earn God's favor, if we're trying to demonstrate our good deeds and therefore delight in God's eyes, the chances are not so good. What we earn is God's judgment and God's disdain and God's sadness for all the ways we fail God's intentions for us. We cannot earn God's favor. We can't. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates that passage that Kevin read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. Listen, this is from the message. It's a wonder God did not lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with incredible love, God embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. God did all of this on God's own with no help from us. Then God picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus the Messiah. Saving is all God's idea. And it's all God's work. All we do is trust God enough to let God do it. Otherwise, we would probably go around bragging that we had done it. No, whether we, we neither make nor save ourselves, God does both the making and the saving. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We cannot earn God's favor. We can't. It's for us from the beginning of time. We did not win God's acclaim for the good things that we might do. We have God's acclaim and love freely given to us. And when we really and truly know about God's love and know about God's claim on our lives and really receive it and really experience it as mercy and as life, then we can only do one thing, and that is live it out in our days. Live it out Rest in it so confidently that it exudes from us in all our doings. Just rest in God's saving and live it out. Let it flow from us in all times. God's love comes freely. We're to live with love. God's grace is for our lives. We're to live with grace and generosity. God's kindness is forever. We're to live with kindness. That's how the equation works. It comes from God and it's meant to be response from us. Actually, I think when we try to earn God's favor, we put ourselves at the center instead of leaving God at the center. You know, I get this weekly, daily email called the Daily Dig, and I know some of you get it too. In this week's Daily Dig, there was this fantastic comment from theologian and spiritual writer Eberhard Arnold. He had such intriguing insights. He says that when we strive forward with our own power, our own initiatives, our own struggling even, we can actually sense God's Spirit retreating, dismantling itself. 
when we put ourselves at the center, when it becomes all about us and all about our efforts, even for the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit can actually leave the scene. Instead, we're called to dismantle our own desires for power, dismantle our own selfish pursuits. Then God will bring it all about. Awaken from us, draw forth from us fresh elements of the kingdom of God in our midst. A nice reminder from Eberhard Arnold. We often recite a prayer that... uh, when we stand at the graveside. We often recite a certain prayer uh, when we're at the cemetery, and I love these words. They go like this. O Lord, support us all the days long until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done And then in your great mercy, O God, grant us a safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. Amen. We can get so caught up in the fever of life. We get so caught up in the busy world. We can get so caught up in the striving and in the losing and in the going and the racing, trying to earn God's favor. But God's love comes from the beginning first. God's mercy grants us a safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. That's the gospel. We live in the gospel. It's not to earn God's favor that we devote our lives to God. It's because of God's favor that we devote our lives to God. It's not to win approval that we feed the hungry or care for the sick or be a beacon of light in the city. It's not to earn anything that we go to Guatemala or to Malawi or work with all our partner agencies for peace and hope, it's because, because of God's approval of us. It's not ever to boast, as Ephesians reminds us, it's never to feel good about God, that we seek to grow as disciples. If we're seeking that, we're actually earning God's disdain. No, it's because we have heard who we are as God's people. It's because we know it's so clearly in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls that we seek to live it out in love, in kindness, in mercy, in justice every day that we find ourselves. All we do then is not about us, for who can boast? It's all about God who makes us, who blesses us with resources to share, who sends us, who accomplishes through us far more than we can ever ask or imagine. That's the gospel. Whenever good things happen, it's less a sign that human nature is good. It's a sign that God is at work making good things happen. As soon as we start putting ourselves at the center, our faith, our spirituality, our good deeds, we're in trouble in trouble and heading down a road that leads us away from God and away from life. Our focus is on God and God's gospel, and we live into it. We keep in our refrigerator at home a a little card, and on that card is a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, and that quote, especially this weekend on the anniversary of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, applies now maybe more than it ever has This is what King says. When evil people plot 
good people must plan. When evil people burn and bomb, good people must build and bind. When evil people shout ugly words of hatred, good people must commit themselves to the glories of love. When evil people would seek to perpetuate an unjust status quo, good people must seek to bring and to begin a real order of justice. We are good, not because of what we do, because God says, you are good. We are good, not because we've earned any status or achieved anything on our own, because through Jesus Christ, God says, you. You're loved and you're good. And in that goodness is how we live. Embodying light, embodying love, embodying hope, embodying peace today, tomorrow, and forever. Let us never forget God's love comes first. God's grace shapes our lives. God's arms are always around us and holding us. And God is the one calling us to be good. And that shapes everything we do. Sending us, guiding us, directing us for love and light in the world. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, Lord, we do. Help our unbelief and may our lives embody your goodness and love, your faithfulness and light following Christ our Lord. Amen.